What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. Bring in show music, please. This is Squawk Pod. I'm CNBC producer Zach Valisi. Today on our podcast, two big interviews. Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen with an urgent warning to raise the debt limit in the U.S. It would be catastrophic to not pay the government's bills. It really undermines confidence in the full faith and credit of the United States. So will the U.S. fail to pay its bills? The White House's top economic voice on those two certainties, debt and taxes. There's an enormous tax gap in the United States, estimated at $7 trillion over the next 10 years in terms of a shortfall of tax collections to what we believe are owed. It comes from places where the information on income is opaque and can be hidden. And PC pioneer Michael Dell, the stories of success and failure that built his $80 billion brand. The tech leader is out with a new memoir. I wanted to really tell the real raw stories of what actually happened and not the sort of glamorous version. It's Tuesday, October 5th, 2021. Squawk Pod begins right now. Today on the podcast, Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen and a dangerous deadline that is fast approaching. The United States will no longer be able to honor its debts by October 18th. And if Congress doesn't agree on a plan to suspend or raise the ceiling by then, the U.S. could default for the first time ever. As you'll hear from Secretary Yellen, a default would prompt widespread damage to our own economy, to people's paychecks, and to the United States' reputation. But hopefully, our lawmakers will avoid that. Before she took on the role as Treasury Secretary in 2021, Yellen was chair of the Federal Reserve. So while she's watching inflation and tax proposals from her perch at the Treasury, she's also watching the Fed and her successor, Jerome Powell. Janet Yellen joined Squawk Box anchors Joe Kernan, Becky Quick, and Andrew Ross Sorkin today. Here's Andrew. Ms. Secretary, thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me. It's great to see you. Um, Help us understand the state of play as you see it. You have warned Congress that they have until October 18th uh, to raise or suspend the debt limit to avoid what would be uh, the first ever U.S. default. Of course, the U.S. now has about $28.4 trillion in debt. Uh, The votes don't appear to be there. How do you see it? Well, you know, it's really up to uh, Speaker Pelosi and Leader Schumer to figure out how to get this done um, in Congress. Um, What I can tell you is that it's utterly essential that this be done. Uh, I've said that by the 18th of October, we will uh, be out of extraordinary measures, have limited cash, and likely to exhaust it very quickly. Um, And so I do regard October 18th as a deadline. Uh, It would be catastrophic to not pay the government's bills, for us to be in a position where we lack the resources 
to pay the government's bills. It really undermines confidence in the full faith and credit um, of the United States, um, our willingness to stand behind our debts and make sure that we pay them. And when you think about the impact it could have on 50 million seniors that are expecting Social Security checks on our troops, on 30 million households waiting to receive their child tax uh, credit payments, um, and these would be delayed and the delays would grow longer. And of course, um, our debt itself, um, U.S. Treasury securities are, have long been viewed as the safest asset on the planet that, that partly accounts for the um, reserve status of the dollar and um, placing that in question by failing to pay any of our bills that come due um, would really be a catastrophic outcome. I, I fully expect it would cause a recession as well. I, I recognize uh, that, that this is ultimately going to be the responsibility of uh, the Senate and the House. Uh, but let me ask you this. Um, Senator McConnell uh, did put it uh, on there, uh, put, put the responsibility on the Speaker of the House uh, and the Senate Democratic leader uh, yesterday. Uh, and then uh, Senator Manchin yesterday uh, said maybe the, the approach in terms of the tools that are available should be reconciliation, that Democrats should do it in reconciliation. Would you support that? Well, Andrew, I support getting it done. Um, I, this has long been done on a bipartisan basis. The debt ceiling has been raised almost 80 times since 1960 and almost always on a bipartisan basis. This shouldn't be the responsibility of one party or the other. We have to raise the debt ceiling as a routine matter whenever the country um, runs budget deficits. And with the exception of a few years in the late 1990s, this has happened during most of the post-war period. And it should be routine to raise it. Um, when bills are passed and uh, tax policy is put in place, that's the right time to debate what the fiscal policy of this country should be. And we have those debates. But once decisions are made, we have to pay the bills that come from those decisions. And so to place an arbitrary ceiling on our debt and to create periodic crises, manufactured crises that... Um, really place our economy and our financial system at risk, especially now that we're recovering from the pandemic uh, in a fragile way. Um, I, I consider this irresponsible. I believe that both parties uh, have a responsibility to get this done, and it's really up to the Congress to decide how to manage it, but I believe it must be done. One of the reasons that debate is taking place um, is in part because the Democrats have now linked uh, these two other spending uh, packages together uh, that are quite remarkable in size. And I'm curious if you could take us inside those conversations and whether you support linking those, those two packages together. Well, I support both packages. Um, I think the infrastructure bill that um, was crafted on a bipartisan basis certainly has the support of the White House. I'm supportive of it. Without doubt, we need to modernize our infrastructure, 
Our roads and bridges, in many cases, are crumbling. We need to upgrade our ports, our airports, to modernize our grid, uh, to build electric power um, charging stations across the country, to uh, promote the use of electric cars to address climate change. This is really important, but um, what's in the other package, the reconciliation package, is also tremendously important. It involves child care, paid leave, um, a child tax credit, uh, investments in education, in early childhood education, and very important climate change initiatives. And all of these initiatives are important um, for our economy to be able to grow. Um, the, some of the supports for children and families will raise uh, labor force participation, make it easier for women to work in the labor force, um, make us closer to most other advanced countries. Labor force participation for women now lags behind. Um, climate change, it's essential to deal with that. And look, this is a package that's paid for. Um, we've proposed um, tax increases and improvements in enforcement uh, that would serve to close what's estimated to be a $7 trillion tax gap over the um, next 10 years. So this is a fiscally responsible package. And the total spending is less than 1%. It's over 10 years, and it's less than 1% of GDP over those 10 years. In that sense, it's not very large. Madam Secretary, obviously there are debates about whether whether it will pay for itself and what the cost will ultimately be. Given the debt uh, that we uh, have generated uh, over, well, now a very long time, frankly, on a bipartisan basis, I wanted to ask you about uh, a proposal that Paul Krugman has gotten behind recently, and that is uh, what's called the trillion-dollar coin uh, as, a, as a possible fix or tool in your toolbox to solve this, effectively minting a coin that could pay off some of our debt. What do you think of that? I'm opposed to it, and I don't believe that we should consider it seriously. It's really a gimmick, and what's necessary is for Congress to show that um, the world can count on America paying its debts. This is equivalent, the platinum coin is equivalent to asking the Federal Reserve to uh, print money to cover deficits that Congress is unwilling to cover by issuing debt. It compromises the independence of the Fed, conflating monetary and fiscal policy. And um, instead of showing that Congress and the administration um, can be trusted to pay, to pay the country's bills, it really does the opposite. Madam Secretary, it's great to have you, especially since uh, we, we can at least ask you about your, your, former, uh, your former role. And I want to ask you about money supply. Someone pointed out to me that prior to the pandemic, M2 was growing at about 7 percent in that March. And it subsequently went to 20 percent and grew there for through the pandemic, M2. It has now come down to, uh, to a, a lower level, but still double what it was. It's at 13 percent. And, and this uh, individual pointed out to me that's way too many dollars, and it's responsible for some of the inflation and the inflationary expectations uh, that we have. Are you paying attention 
uh, at this point still to, to, to money supply growth? And do you think that this could, ba- could come back to haunt us to some extent, all these dollars? Well, I still try to pay attention to what's happening in the economy. Um, I trust the Fed to uh, make the right decisions. Um, you know, we have been hit by an incredibly unusual shock. And um, in the one hand, we're almost six million jobs short of where we were before the pandemic, which means a lot of uh, people who still need jobs. Um, On the other hand, um, many firms are finding it difficult to hire. We've had extraordinary shifts in the pattern of demand away from services and toward goods. And I know the Fed is trying to sort through the implications of that. Supply bottlenecks have developed um, that have caused inflation. I believe that they're transitory, but that doesn't mean they'll go away over the next several months. Madam Secretary, as, as you take the lead on a lot of things economy-related. I don't know how much you get into the weeds on appointments, but the controller of the currency and the, the nominee is somewhat controversial uh, because of some of her uh, past comments about the U.S. banking system. I'm talking about Saul uh, Amarova. And some people have said that it indicates that the Biden administration is much more um, um, sort of out there in terms of the, of the left side of things financially and financial matters uh, than, than we were led to believe. Did you, do you support that nomination? Did you have anything to do with, uh, with vetting uh, uh, Ms. Amarova, Professor Amarova? Well, Professor Amarova is the president's nominee, and um, I'm aware that she's an expert in fintech, fintech and banking regulation, and I think she deserves um, a fair hearing by the Senate. I hope she will get that. Madam Secretary, um, Senator Warren came out pretty strongly against Jay Powell being renominated. She said she won't support it. There are now questions being asked about whether the administration will go ahead and renominate Jay Powell. What, what's your opinion? Should he get a second term? Well, it's up to the president to make a nomination, and um, the president hasn't yet made that decision. I know he will talk to many people and consider a wide range of evidence and opinions and make a very careful decision. Madam Secretary, before we let you go, I uh, wanted to talk to you a little bit for a moment just about taxes, uh, because to pay for all the things uh, that uh, the administration is seeking, um, there is a big tax uh, raise on the, on, the, on the docket, but also an effort um, that I know you're a proponent of for the IRS to collect more uh, information um, and, 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 and more tax dollars, but more information about taxpayers' bank accounts, including annual cash flows. And I was curious whether you think the IRS has the, the wherewithal to actually do that. Well, of course they do. Um, right now, on every bank account that earns more than $10 a year in interest, um, the banks report uh, the interest earned to the IRS. That's part of the information base that includes W-2s and reports on dividends uh, and other income that uh, taxpayers earn. So collection of information is routine. But there's an enormous tax gap in the United States, estimated at $7 trillion over the next 10 years in terms of a shortfall 
of tax collections to what we believe are owed. And that, that's not coming from people failing to report wage income or dividend income where there's good information. It comes from um, places where the information on income is opaque and can be hidden. And a simple way for the IRS to get a sense of where that might be is just a few pieces of information about individuals' bank accounts. Um, nothing at the transaction level that would violate privacy, simply aggregate inflows into the account over the year and aggregate outflows. And that would really help the IRS target their auditing resources, which we've proposed to greatly um, expand, um, to um, do their audits on those usually high-income, wealthy individuals um, that may be concealing their, uh, their transactions and their income. And these would be helpful indicators of where it would make sense uh, for auditing to occur. So it is not reporting of individual transactions or anything of the like. And it would be a simple thing for banks and other payment providers uh, to provide along with the other information they're already providing. Madam Secretary, I want to thank you for joining us this morning right here on Squawk Box. Um, I hope we can do it again soon to continue this conversation. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. She says October 18th is the drop-dead day, basically. She sees that as the day that we are near to running out of cash. Um, the wrangling that you're seeing right now in Congress doesn't make it look like it's a sure thing between now and then, because what is that, 13 days? 13 days. And I didn't get a sense that uh, she had a sense that they were going to get any closer. Yeah. There are so many things that are happening right now that she was able to weigh in on. Um, also, just the question of will Jay Powell be uh, nominated again by this administration? Um, Senator Warren came out in the last week and was very dead set that she's not going to support that. Um, Janet Yellen said the administration, that Joe Biden will talk to a lot of people and make his own decision. But she didn't come out and say that she'd be recommending him either. She was quiet on that point. She kind of said that she she was OK with this this controller of the currency nomination that, you know, the individual went to Moscow State on a Lenin scholarship and, and really says that the Soviet banking system is better than ours and would, would you know, has made some very, you know, I think what you say about Wall Street, it's a bunch of a-holes or something. And I, I, I didn't really understand whether that did it sound like she said uh, was she involved in picking that uh, Professor Amarova or just said I, that? I didn't get the I, didn't get the I did not get the sense that she thought she was involved in it. I think that that these people in these positions, as we know, whether we've interviewed uh, people in the prior administration or administrations past in these roles, you support the president. Right. And so when this when the right, president right, right. has a position and, a, and an appointee, you say that you support or, them, yeah, yeah, whether you do of, or you don't. Right. Uh, Right. I think you're probably right with that. Um, but I just wonder how much influence she has on policy then, because she is the, the lead on financial matters, you would think. So I would have thought she'd have some say. In, and if she did have a say and say, yeah, this person seems fine to me, I think that's an indication of my of guess is Andrea's probably right in terms of, you know, I'm sure she has an opinion on it and she's not going to tell us. She told the administration <laughs> and that's kind of where she stands with that. Doggone it. I, guess. I, I wish she would have. <laughs> she could whisper it to us. 
Next on Squawk Pod, Michael Dell is the last pioneer of the personal computing revolution still running the company he founded. The story of Dell, from his college dorm room to taking on corporate raiders to computing in a pandemic. When you're doing new things, a lot of it is experimenting and testing and failing and trying again and ultimately finding your way to success. We've done that time and time again, and we're still doing it. The market doesn't joke around, so why would you? Get serious. Choose Tasty Trade. Tasty Trade gives you the tools you need to make smarter moves. Dig into data with advanced charting, track profit accurately with order chain trackers, see risk clearly with curve analysis, and trade with low-capped commissions, stocks, options, futures, and more. All on one platform. No wonder serious traders choose Tasty Trade. Join the club, genius. Tasty Trading is a registered broker-dealer and member of FINRA and SIPC. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. FedEx Ground service is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively, FedEx. This is Squawk Pod from CNBC. I'm producer Zach Valisi. Apple, Google, Hewlett Packard, all these companies were founded in and around garages. But our next guest started up a little bit differently. In his roommate's bathroom and in a dorm room at the University of Texas, Michael Dell founded his computer upgrade company, PCs Limited, when he was only 19 years old. Kind of took my uh, summer off and started the company and <laughs> decided to continue. Computers, well, were boxy with limited graphics, but they were rising in consumer popularity. And by the time he should have graduated from college, well, before he dropped out, Dell was a CEO noted as a whiz kid. This is from the NBC archives. The anchor is Chris Wallace. We want to introduce you tonight to the whiz kid. His name is Michael Dell, and he is so smart and so energetic He's done more in a couple of years than most of us could even dream of doing in a lifetime. His business is computers, making and selling them to corporate customers. He is chairman, chief executive officer, owns all of the company's stock, and he is only 22. This 1987 profile features an incredibly young Michael Dell in a huge pair of glasses. As we, as we get that chassis tighter, we'll, we'll uh, slow that down a lot. He is a self-taught technical genius. The business's innovation, lowering costs on computers, offering customizable features, and cutting out the middleman. Dells were sold directly to consumers. There's so much to be done, so, so many opportunities, so many things to do. Dell Computer went public in 1988, and by the time he was 27, Michael Dell was the country's youngest leader of a Fortune 500 company. PC demand was hot for years, decades even. Michael Dell had appeared on CNBC many times. Here he is on Squawk Box in 2004. Is there anybody here who can help me fix my printer problem? Is there anybody, anywhere? Oh, it looks like there is. Hopefully I can help you with that, David. Wow. You make house calls? It's Michael Absolutely. Dell. 
But changing tastes in the laptop market and the rise of smartphones took a toll on the stalwart of PCs. And in 2013, Dell led a remarkable shift in the company's strategy. Due to a low share price, Dell and private equity partners bought back the company's stock from shareholders, taking it private for several years and focusing on the rebuilding of the company away from the pressures of quarterly earnings statements. It is now official. We have some news out of the Dell meeting. Jackie DeAngelis has that. Hey, Jackie. Michael Dell's proposal, along with Silver, Silver Lake Partners, has been approved by the shareholders. Thirteen seventy-five a share. We're going to get the $0.13 cent special dividends. And also when it relisted in 2018, Dell Technologies was a different company. It had acquired an IT infrastructure giant called EMC, invested in cloud and data computing, and other software. It's this story of taking significant risk, from the bathroom to an $80 billion tech giant, that Michael Dell tells in his new memoir called Play Nice But Win, out today. He discussed that on our TV broadcast today with Becky Quick. Michael, welcome. It's great to see you this morning. Thank you, Becky. Great to be with you. I just want to say, first of all, thank you for writing this book, because I've always found you to be a man of few words. And the idea that you actually opened up and told everybody what you were thinking through some of the key critical moments we've all followed, I mean, was pretty unbelievable. You are very open in this book. You really tell us what's on your mind, what you were thinking through at the time. And I was reading it thinking, what inspired you to open up like this? It it, it surprised me how candid you were. Well, I, I wanted to do it, I think, partly because uh, I had never done it before and, uh, you know, felt I had a story to tell. And a lot of friends certainly encouraged me after the uh, take private of the, of the company, the largest take private ever in tech, and then the biggest merger acquisition ever in tech with EMC and VMware to, to write the book. And it was a lot of fun. And, uh, you know, I hope people enjoy it and, you know, take some valuable lessons from it. Yeah, one of the things, of course, people are going to be interested to hear is your take on what was happening with Carl Icahn while you were going private, don't go with the take private planning to do that. Um, the battles that, that were pretty public, not because you were talking, but because Carl Icahn was talking through the entire thing. So I have to say that was some of the stuff that really uh, grabbed me and dragged me in. One guy wrote a headline that was perfect. What did he say? They scared the Dell out of shareholders. You know? <laughs> there are those who are looking at this entire situation and saying, Carl, you don't really want Dell, do you? Why, why do you want this business? It's a dying business. Do you think that Michael Dell will raise his bid amid reports that he will not? You know something? I don't know. And I will tell you honestly, I know you're not going to believe it. I don't care a hell of a lot. I would like to own the company, okay? I, I own 150 million shares. I'm in to make money, obviously. But... The most money I've ever made is when we control these companies, when we get into them. Kind of looking back and reflecting on that, you said things like you called him a greedy pirate and pirate Carl, things that I I would anticipate would be what anybody was dealing with when they were kind of going through that with him. Um, You also mentioned his wife's meatloaf. And I just wondered, have you heard from him since this book is just coming out today? My guess is Carl probably got an early copy of it. I have not heard from him yet, but he doesn't really get, he's more of a PM guy than an AM guy. So we'll, we'll, we'll wait and see later today. You know, the, the, the things that you were going through, and I think this is what entrepreneurs and potential leaders will take out of this book, is just what it was like, what it took to create the company, be running on fumes, trying to be operating under such difficult conditions and kind of making this up as you went along, but growing at a phenomenal pace. 
Um, these are things you can't teach people. This is something you've been doing since you were a teenager. Yeah, and I wanted to really tell the the real raw stories of what actually happened and uh, not the sort of glamorous version. Um, and yeah, I mean, it, when you're doing new things, a lot of it is experimenting and uh, testing and failing and trying again and learning and and ultimately finding your way to success. And, uh, you know, we've we've done that time and time again, and we're still doing it. One of the things that struck me is how, how different your story is than some of the stories we see coming out of Silicon Valley today. Um, there's this whole idea of fake it till you make it. And that, that was not the case with you. You were doing things and doing real things every step along the way. That doesn't mean you didn't make mistakes, didn't have things you wish you'd done differently. But there's none of the faking it there. This is things that were really happening. What do you think when you look at Silicon Valley these days and, and see this idea of faking it till you make it instead of just actually doing the work? Well, yeah, I mean, uh, uh, we, we, we were profitable our first quarter. <laughs> I, I showed the financial statements in there. And we were profitable when we went public and uh, at, a, at a pretty reasonable rate. Um, look, I think one of the things that's inspiring right now is there is an enormous amount of capital that's going after some really big hard tech problems. And that's great because it's creating a lot of innovation. But uh, you know, as we've seen, there's also a dark side to that where uh, there, there, there are some bad things that are occurring in the market as well. You know, you write about how I mean, we knew that you created this company in your in your dorm room. At least that's what legend has always told us. But it was far more than that. You created this company just about everywhere and apartments that you had in your dorm room, new apartments, places that you set things up. You were kind of the original person who could work from anywhere. Uh, we've all kind of gone through this in the pandemic where we've been forced to work different places. I just wonder what you think today about what consumers want, what employers want, and, and how that kind of works, just this work from anywhere, and how the technology companies like yours kind of adapt to that. Right. I think through this, uh, you know, last 18 months, we've all sort of learned that, you know, work is something we do. It's it's not a place. And uh, I think, you know, uh, Employers are embracing hybrid work, and that's obviously creating a lot of demand for technology. And uh, ultimately, I think it's leading to uh, happier employees and more productivity. It doesn't mean that there's not a role for offices, but I, I think it'll definitely be different in the future. And and certainly, you know, I think this this period has has uh, given us a, a real glimpse of the future as to how we can use technology and tools to to work from anywhere. And, uh, you know, certainly uh, for for parts of our business uh, and really, really for all of our business, uh, it's been a it's been a great uh, tailwind for us. Yeah, we're looking at the the chart right now. Dell stock up 210 percent from the pandemic lows. Um, and I know this last quarter was a really strong one for you with a super growth of uh, sales growth of about 15 percent. What, what's driving things right now? So I, I, I think uh, uh, I, I think we'll have a very strong second half as well. <laughs> so, look, I think uh, you know the demand for our products uh, pretty much across the board uh, is super strong. If if you think about the last eighteen months, the only thing that really worked during the lockdowns was technology, and so organizations all over the world are investing heavily in technology. 
You know, today's also, in addition to my book, it's also the uh, the day that uh, Windows 11 is being introduced. And you've got about 700 million PCs out there right now that won't run Windows 11, right? <laughs> and so, uh, you know, there's an enormous upgrade cycle. And if you think about hybrid work, obviously that generates a lot of demand. And then, of course, all the cloud infrastructure and edge computing, 5G, you know, all, all of these things. And, and, and we, we need to mention the, the uh, cyber challenges and uh, cyber threats out there. All of those are generating demand for the uh, infrastructure and, uh, you know, uh, uh, solutions that, that, that we provide our customers around the world. So demand, demand is strong. And, and um, while there are supply chain challenges, we're, we're doing relatively well. I was going to ask you about that. You write in the book about how you went to Asia for the first time when you were just 20 years old to really kind of peel back the layers of the onion and figure out how the supply chain works. Um, what are you doing these days with the chip shortage? How do you try and make sure that you have enough of all the things you need? Lots of uh, forward buying. And certainly, you know, I think uh, the quality of our demand signal has been better than our competitors. Supply chain has been a strength for us for quite some time, but we're not immune. I mean, we are, uh, we do have very high backlogs, even though we're shipping more products than we ever have in the past and lead times for many products are, are extended, but, uh, you know, we're, 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 we're doing our best to keep up. I think it's going to still take uh, quite some time for semiconductor capacity to, to rise to the, to the demand, uh, that, that we see out there. So, it's it's record it's record demand and record shipments uh, even though there 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 are challenges. Michael, you kind of have, have been one of those rare people who not only would go pub- public with the company, take it private, and then go public again. And and I think that's just kind of mind boggling for people to get their heads around. Um, what made you decide to go back to the public markets again? What what kind of was the moment that you said, okay, time to go back to shareholders? You know, after the uh, massive uh, series of transactions that we've done, it was really time to simplify the capital structure, uh, you know, clean up a lot of the uh, debt that we had. We paid down an incredible amount of debt and uh, got a, a double notch upgrade a few days ago from S&P and a similar one from Fitch. Uh, so, Really, go, going public was the simplest way to bring all the different classes of shares uh, of the company together and simplify the structure and give us the flexibility we need. And we had significantly transformed the company uh, in, in, in a material way. And you see that with our continued growth and success. What do you like better, running a public company or a private one? You know, I like them both. It's, it's, uh, and, and one of the things that we did when we went private was we reignited the entrepreneurial engine of the company and talk about that a lot in in the book. And we've kept that spirit and that uh, approach going, uh, you know, now now that we're public again. Today is not only the launch of Windows 11, but it's also 10 year anniversary from when the technology industry um, lost Steve Jobs. And I know that he's somebody that you looked up to and admired. You met him very early on when you were still a teenager. Um, what do you think just in terms of what's happened, the transformation 10 years later at Apple? 
Well, you know, it's certainly uh, amazing how how the 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 you know the, the smartphone, the iPhone, you know, has has changed all of our lives, and you know, uh, Apple's Apple's continued to, to to innovate. I think it's certainly different than what Steve would have done. Uh, you know, he he had a, he had a different. A different approach and his his own approach and and uh, you know but uh, look I mean Apple's an incredible company and and Steve obviously um, uh, an, an amazing amazing leader that that uh, you know uh, change, change the industry forever and uh, you know what what can you say I mean uh, Apple Apple is certainly uh, Change, change, change the way we think about computing. I mean, now you've got five billion people walking around uh, in the world today, if effectively with computers in their pockets. And uh, you know, Apple, Apple was an enormous part of making that happen. Yeah, Michael, I want to thank you so much for the time and the book. Again, is really a very open read. Um, very honest, and it was a pleasure to read. So thanks for being with us today. The book, again, is called Play Nice, But When, and uh, we appreciate your time. Thank you, Becky. Great to be with you. You too. By the way, folks, we should also point out that October 13th is CNBC's At Work Summit. It returns with a packed lineup, including Michael Dell and many other influential voices on the future of work. I'll be speaking with Ray Dalio there as well. And if you want to be with us for that event, you can register right now at cnbcevents.com slash work summit. Squawk Pod will be right back. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. FedEx Ground service is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively, FedEx. That's Squawk Pod for today. Thanks for listening. Looking ahead to tomorrow, the explosive congressional testimony of the Facebook whistleblower. Will the world's largest social network be forced to change its practices? Squawk Box is hosted by Joe Kernan, Becky Quick, and Andrew Ross Sorkin. You can tune in weekday mornings on CNBC at 6 Eastern. To get the smartest takes and analysis from our TV show right to your ears, listen and follow Squawk Pod wherever you get your podcasts. We'll be back here tomorrow. We are clear. Thanks, guys. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. FedEx Ground service is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively, FedEx. FedEx.